All right, welcome to the Fire the Cannons episode of the Pro Football Doc podcast. We're still coming off the glow of the Super Bowl. And uh, great show today, but I promise to tell my Fire the Cannons story that I have uh, at Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, Stadium there, Raymond James Stadium. We've got a great special guest, a lot of topical things to discuss. Um, including uh, avocado tequila, turf wars, and a new feature, uh, uh, What Happened Here, a video feature that might become even more popular than uh, the uh, Beast of the Week video. But before we get there, let's talk about the Fire the Cannons uh, uh, episode here. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's, let's have this even be more fun. So I can interact with our special guest here. I'll bring him in before we tell the story here. Our special guest today is a friend of mine. Believe it or not, I knew his brother before I knew him. We have a lot of people in common, including, you know, the, the team physician, Dr. Lowe, who's my friend, but bringing in Seth Payne, longtime NFL defensive lineman, uh, dominated the game in the mid-2000s, Jacksonville, the Houston Texans, and back to Jacksonville now dominating uh, Houston radio. And I've had the pleasure of corresponding with him and being on his show. And I thought with all the Houston things going on this week, it'd be fun to chat with uh, Seth. So Seth, welcome to the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here. And yeah, we've known each other a long time through uh, my brother, who was an Ombak rugby player originally. And uh, you did, I've, I've heard a lot of good stories about you. And, uh, I'm, I, and I love your podcast, man. So I'm excited to be on here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, your, your backdrop is real and it kicks butt to mine. I'm just a little office studio. You got the whole professional setup there. <laughs> so um, here's my fire the cannon story. So, Dan, you know this. When you go on away trips, Obviously, the team doctors go with you kind of deal. And on for us, you know, you out of Houston, how often did you take three-day road trips? Probably three day, not very often. No, it wasn't. I don't know if I can ever remember doing it, you know, though, though, because I, well, I mean, we played in Jacksonville, but the only times we went to the Pacific Northwest, we only stayed one night. So it was rare enough for us to, I, I think it was more of a disruption to try to take a three-day trip than to just try to do it like normal and pay whatever consequences. Yeah, and, and, and having been with the San Diego Chargers, we took more three-day trips than two-day trips because, look, if you're in Jacksonville and going to Seattle, it's a long way, but it's the return that kills you. The way out, oh, you're pretty good, right? Yeah. And so for us on the West Coast, it's the way out that kills you. The return's easy. So if we were to play in Jacksonville, it probably would be a 10 a.m. Pacific time game. And – the game would be over uh, by, you know, 1.30 Pacific time. You get on the buses by 2. You're on the plane by 3. I mean, you're, you're landed in San Diego by 8, 8.30, home at 9. Now, if right. you're coming from San Diego to Jacksonville, the game is over, a 1 p.m. game is over by 4, 4.30 East Coast time. I mean, you're not home till 3 in the morning. I yeah, mean, uh, yeah, kind of, it's... Yeah, they're, they're really um, – and a lot of those East Coast games, just – I mean, if you played a night game, you weren't getting home until 5, 6 in the morning at times, depending on, depending on how right. long the, the stretch was. So um, that was a stretch. But I always, I always did wonder what it was like for these West Coast teams because even when I went from Jacksonville to Houston, 
you would think, all right, what's the big deal between going at 1 p.m. and noon on, on a Sunday? And it, it took me some adjusting to get used to going at noon. And I'm an early riser to begin with, you know, more so than most guys. So I can't imagine what it's like playing at 10 a.m. on your own body clock. Yeah. And, of course, it's President's Day. So the hazards <laughs> of uh, home office podcasting. Hi, sweetie. He's, he's, he's turning your little doggy right now. <laughs> tiger. Oh, hey, tiger. Oh, tiger. Oh, yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. Tiger. Okay, Tiger, you want to go play, Tiger? No. Okay, you want to sit here? You can sit here. So the fire of the cannons is is so we go to, to a game in Tampa. Okay, thank you. Um, when we go to the game in Tampa, we leave on Friday. And this was a big deal for me because I have to cancel my Fridays to, to leave early, et cetera. Oh, yeah. So, so really, many years, five out of our eight road trips would be three-day trips. So Tampa, so you get in Friday night late. And Saturday, you do a walkthrough practice, typically. And even though there's not a lot for me to do, I, you know, it's a team thing, so you go with the team. So I go with the team. And uh, here, here, Denise is calling you. Yeah. Let's see how long that's good for, right? <laughs> Did you just lie to They're your They're trying child. to shut the door here. <laughs> Unprecedented. Yeah. Lie to our well, what's the over/under on that? George right? Washington I mean, did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're at the walkthrough practice, and I was like, you know, there's nothing for me to do. It's a walkthrough. They're not doing anything, and so I'm checking out the stadium. I was like, well, what is there to check out? I check out the stadium. You know, you go to the walkthrough to figure out what cleats you're going to wear, where the 40-second clock is, the play clock is, where the scoreboard clock. You know, just to get used to with the wind for the kickers. Me, uh, I check out where the x-ray facility is. I see where the locker room is. I go exploring. So I go exploring. So what's the thing you want to check out in Tampa? The pirate ship. <laughs> so I go to the pirate ship, checking things out. And sure enough, you get up there and no one's around. You could climb on and then there's a door. <laughs> the door's unlocked. I'm not breaking in. Yeah. I'm walking around, what's up here? And next thing I know, I found myself in the control room. Like, I mean, literally, there was a button that said cannons and a yeah. switch. Literally. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And then here comes the do it, do it, don't was do it. Just, it. Yeah, it was like your finger was being drawn to the button. Yeah, there's the, you know, uh, the you know, classic good angel, be yeah. good, don't do yeah. this. Do it. Come on. It's your chance. And, you know, so there was quite the dilemma there. Yeah. And so here's what I settled on. There is a horn for the end of practice, right? Yeah. And I certainly didn't, even though it's a walkthrough, who cares, right? No. But I didn't want to get in trouble. So I figured maybe when I hear the horn for the end of the walkthrough, I would fire the cannon, right? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Now, let me ask you, if you were in my shoes, would you have pushed the button or not pushed the button? <sighs> okay, you're a doctor, so you're supposed to <laughs> you're supposed to maintain some kind of an aura of respectability and authority, I suppose. Or um, at least pull them. At least wait, who, them. Who, who was the coach at the time? The coach at the time, good question. I think it was Marty at the time. 
Oh, ooh, boy. I don't know. It's Schottenheimer. Boy, what was, what was Schottenheimer like about stuff like that? I'm envisioning Marty something. Marty Norv. I forget which. I feel like Norv would have been cool with it. No, I don't know either of those guys. I think it was Marty. But Marty might not have been, depending on the mood, uh, cool with it or how well the walkthrough is going. It, I would it, say it's not about Marty and his family, right? He just passed away, and I could, yeah. we could tell some Marty stories, too. Yeah. Um, I, I would say with uh, Schottenheimer, I would have been – I think if I had played for Schottenheimer or worked for Schottenheimer, there would have been that healthy amount of fear and respect for him that I don't think I would have done it. Okay. Let me, let me throw something else into the equation since you brought up Marty and respect for Marty. I wrote an article at OutKick, and of course, Marty, you know, from playing days, coaching days, a lot of greatness, and, you know, uh, you know, one play at a time, hit him in the mouth, you know, yeah. all these good locker room things. He always loved being the English major orator. So I'm going to tell you this story and see if this changes your mind on pushing the button or not. Uh, in 2004, Marty was the head coach. We drafted Dave Ball. Yep. I'm sure you know Dave Ball from UCLA. And uh, obviously, there's rookie shows. So right before the final preseason game, there's a rookie show. And Dave Ball does the greatest Marty Schottenheimer impersonation ever. With the sun hat, with the play thing, <laughs> shirt, yeah. and, and all the anachronisms. And brings the house down. It's yeah. hilarious what he does. So the next day, we're playing against the San Francisco 49ers in San Francisco. And it's all non-starters, right? It's the fourth game. And Dave Ball is going to make our squad. He's a fifth-round draft pick. He, he had a nice NFL career. And somewhere in the third quarter, he sacks the 49er quarterback. And there's a flag on the play. And the referee goes, holding offense and decline. And Marty goes, we want to accept that penalty. Like, you just sacked the quarterback. He got the yeah, loss yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, and the ref says, you want to take it? And he goes, yes. So the ref does it and marches it off. And Marty turns around and basically says, F that guy. Okay. That'll teach him. Yeah, <laughs> so he man. took his sack off the board. Yeah, yeah. No it was good fun, man. right? Now, yeah. if this was a rookie that would never make the team a free agent, that's kind of cruel. This is a guy that's going to make our squad. He's going to get his sacks. Yeah, but yeah. Marty had his side too. So yeah, yeah. So, so you're, with I'm, that in mind, I, pressure's on. Are you pushing the button, firing the cannons, or not? If I'm going to handicap it, like I'll say, me, I think I'm a little bit of a coward in that situation. I think you, I think you threw all caution in the wind and went for it. <laughs> well, I actually chickened out. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> now, part of me that almost made me push it is it's probably not loaded anyway. So it'd be fun right. to say I pushed it. Yeah. But I was like, what if it went off? And what if somebody's mad and, you know, there's something other? And as you said, I have to fool people and pretend I'm a doctor and I can have some self control and decorum. So for all that buildup for Fire the Cannons, I never, and to this day, I wonder if there was anything that would have happened. If it's electronic, it's probably turned off you know, kind of thing. I, you know, you can't imagine that it's unlocked and people can just walk in there. It, it might have been, but then you know, you know what it's like around an NFL team, though, too. Like, the, the, the buttholes are so constantly tight about <laughs> stuff like that that if somehow somehow the, the people in Tampa would have thought that that was, uh, like, akin to Spygate or something and would have made a big deal out of it, and then all of a sudden you're having to answer to the owner or to the, to the <laughs> coach about it. So it's just not – you just – whenever you – as a player, whenever you're within, like, 
within the locker room or in season, you always feel this kind of just heavy weight of expectations and responsibility to the team. And when you step away from it in January or February, it feels, it feels like you can actually exhale a little bit again. So I just, I, I'd like to think that, and, and I've spoken my mind at times where I probably should have kept my mouth shut, but when it comes to just firing a cannon, yeah, I would have, I would have chickened out. I did, you should feel no shame over that. Well, I feel better. Cause if Seth Payne would have chickened out, I don't feel bad about chickening out. And my other logic was I'm not a central character. In yeah, this yeah. Play, right. Yeah. I'm a peripheral. And yeah. so you got to stay peripheral, right? Yeah. I mean, if it somehow was central to me, I would have put, uh, you know. So I chickened out. Thank you for making me feel better about not well, firing the cannons. Schottenheimer, honestly, Schottenheimer was kind of part of my welcome to the NFL experience because I was a rookie in 1997. And we played Kansas City a couple times in those first two or three years that I was in the league. And I just remember – you know, Schottenheimer was this old school NFL guy that said, hey, we don't care if you know what we're going to run. We're going to be more physical than you. We're going to be better than you. We can, we can line up and we can be by formation and down a distance. You might know that it's going to be lead or power and we're just going to smash you in the mouth. And let's see who's still standing at the end of the game. And so I loved that because – you just like you knew what you were getting, and it did. It was like a it was like a test of your manhood when you it played was, a Marty it was, Schottenheimer. It was, team. it was like a an Oklahoma drill for the game. You yeah, knew what was coming. It was. yeah. And the guys that played for Schottenheimer, you know, you wonder how Schottenheimer would have had to maybe change over with the years. And I think he did a pretty good job of it. But I, I mean, the way they hit in practice, and you as an orthopedist knew this. Like it wasn't like most NFL teams. They just they hit like they were a 1970s Big 12 team or something. Yeah, no question. And 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 like most tough teachers, like when you're going through that professor, that teacher, who's really tough on you, you don't really always appreciate them. But down the road, you really do. And that's what happened with Marty. Um, when I was fortunate enough to go back, like the players liked Marty, but I think they grew to love him more the further, the older they got, the more they got down the road. And, and there was some special reverence when a bunch of us were out at LT's enshrinement for the Hall of Fame and Marty and his family were there. And everyone was with LT at one of his functions. And then we players heard that Marty was next door at a restaurant and everybody wanted to just leave immediately and go over and say hello to Marty. And uh, it was such a, uh, a big deal and the, the reverence there. And I think that was over time, they realized what he did was good for him. But at the time, you know, you may not love that Oklahoma drill. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, there's definitely, it's, you know, playing for Coughlin is a little bit like that. It's like if, if it's like growing up with a really strict father that you might really chafe against him and think you hate him when you're in high school. And when you get older and have kids of your own, you realize, okay, I see what he was thinking now. <laughs> and I understand, I understand why he did what he did and, and, you know, why he acted the way he acted. Coughlin, Coughlin for sure, a lot of guys have that experience with. All right. So um, you're in Houston. Since we're talking about Marty, and this is obviously unscripted. We just, it's like, you know, it's almost like you're having a, a, a cocktail or beer in your hand, right? We're just chatting. Yeah. <laughs> Compare and contrast Marty Schottenheimer to Jack Easterby. Oh, <laughs> okay. So Jack Easterby, who is currently, I believe his current title is Director of Football Operations. He was a character coach in New England 
who went on to be the director of team development for the Texans uh, when the Texans tried to hire away Nick Casario two years ago to be their general manager the owner decided, you know what, we'll just have Bill O'Brien and Jack Easterby and a committee act like the general manager. And, and really, it was Bill O'Brien and Jack Easterby side by side the whole time. And that's when we got the trading two first round picks for Laramie Tunsil, trading away Jadeveon Clowney, uh, ultimately trading away DeAndre Hopkins, giving out a whole bunch of bloated contracts. It was just, it was a really, really bad stretch of bad contracts and bad decisions. And Bill O'Brien got fired and Jack Easterby remained. And I, I think the overriding question that a lot of people have in Houston, uh, some people on the football team or in the organization have is, how is this character coach, this guy who's super religious, uh, grabs people's hands to pray with them at various times, uh, and, and kind of just is a walking, talking, motivational quote why is he necessarily in the position he's in? And I really still haven't gotten a good answer. <laughs> I, he's, he has this, he seemingly has this Rasputin-like hold over the owner and, and nobody can really figure it out. They've got this plan where culture trumps everything and they want, uh, they want these smart, tough, and dependable players but almost to the exclusion of actually having talented football players on your roster. So Jack Easterby compared to Martin Sch Marty Schottenheimer. <laughs> I would say that Marty Schottenheimer was the ultimate in actual like boots on the ground competence, right? The, the actual understands offense, understands scheme, understands, understands people and human beings. And that's probably the key distinction because Jack Easterby is the ultimate football outsider who doesn't really understand football, but he's supposed to understand things like emotional intelligence and uh, perhaps organizational psychology, that type of stuff. And, and has, a, has a rapport with people and players, which he did in New England when he was just the character coach. He was kind of the high five guy. Like everybody, yeah, he's just this guy that, that hung around. Um, but now – as the guy who's in charge of trying to instill a certain culture in the organization, he's created one of the most dysfunctional and toxic relationships or toxic cultures in the NFL to the point where guys like Deshaun Watson, JJ Watt, the team president, Jamie roots have, have all either quit requested a trade or just requested their release like JJ Watt did last week. And he was granted it. So it's uh yeah, that's a, that's a really stark contrast between those two. I think one's the ultimate football guy and one's the ultimate outsider, um, which, which I would be a fan of. I kind of like thinking outside the box, except you, you can't just think that your ideas are good just because they're outside the box. They have to be both outside the box, but also good ideas. Here, here, tell me if this makes sense. Um, and I'll relate it to Marty, but also Jack Easterby, who I've never met. Um, Marty was sort of a tough guy coach, right? Mm -hmm. And one of our previous coaches was Mike Riley, a very rah-rah college players coach. Nor was somewhere in between. And it's always been my feeling that whether you're tough guy Tom Coughlin, whether you're Bill Belichick all business, whether you're friendly coach and, and players coach and Pete Carroll or whatever you are. I think all those styles can work with the same team. 
with the same players. I think some teams are more suited to a friendly coach or a tough guy coach or whatever. But I found in my time in the NFL, having worked with a lot of different head coaches and other coaches and other GMs or people, the number one quality that I think you have to have, and if you don't have it, you will fail. You can be a tough guy, you can be nice guy, but you have to be authentic mm-hmm. because you're in the building so long and with each other so much. If you're fake, you get seen through. If you're a fake tough guy, they're not gonna like you. If you're a fake nice guy, they're not gonna like you. If you're a fake religious guy, they're not gonna like you. If you're authentic and live your life religious guy, I mean, Philip Rivers never swore at his family. He was widely accepted by everybody mm-hmm. and very nice. But if you're like a you know, part-time religious guy, I'm not trying to get religion to a part-time tough guy, part-time this, that, the other, and inauthentic. I think the players hate you. That's they, my... That's yeah, my. I, no, I think you're exactly right. The time spent with each other is a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to college where there are strict restrictions on how much time you can spend with the players. In the NFL, there are some restrictions, but for the most part, it's an all-day, it's a full-time job, and you're around each other all the time in a really high-stress environment. And... And I think that there's, there's something that's going on in the NFL right now that's almost pervasive, which is people who are preaching culture in a way that is almost like they're trying to transplant ideas from corporate America and making them work on an NFL team. And I think that's, that's exactly what Jack Easterby is trying to do. The problem with that is that, look, if, you're, if you've got a, a large company and uh, you're manufacturing widgets, then when you're, when you're seeking employees, there are literally thousands upon thousands of people who are going to be qualified for whichever position you fill. So you might want to hire for a certain personality type. You might want to hire for a, per, a, cer- a certain skill set. But, but then you bring a lot of people together. And usually it's in a company that's much bigger than a football team which really on the football side of things is only a hundred people or so, you know, between coaches and really a small company, right. It's not a, yeah. it's a billion dollar business, but it's a small company. Yeah. Right. So, so you see all these things where I, I think culture, culture is almost like in an organization where the Texans are right now, you have these people, these guys like Jack Easterby who can go and talk to a team owner or you know, the board members or whomever else that, that make a good pitch and sell a good a, a dream or a vision of like, oh, wow, we're going to have this great culture. And because of this culture, then everybody will be pulling in the same direction. And it is. That's all great. It's all good stuff. The problem is that in the NFL, at any given time, there are only 1,500 people who are qualified to, to even be on a team in the NFL and only about 750 of them are qualified to start, and really even fewer than that, because every team's got a bunch of guys that they would prefer they were, they were upgrades. So when you start being so strict about your culture or your hiring practices or who's good enough for your culture or who isn't, you, you start to really narrow down your talent pool. Um, and, and it can be really hard to field a competitive football team. And I think right now, guys like Jack Easterby, who only, you know, when, when, you, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
a guy like Jack Easterby, his only hammer is really, hey, I'm the culture guy. I'm the organizational psychology guy. So everything becomes a culture problem instead of a, oh, wait a second. The You're talent. telling me that DeAndre Hopkins isn't good enough to be on your team because of culture? You know, like, what the hell are you talking about? No, no, the talent is the most important thing. Figure out a way to coach him. Figure out a way to keep Deshaun Watson from wanting to flee your team. Figure those things out, and the culture will follow. If you hire, if you hire really good football players who are competitive as hell, who DeAndre Hopkins is, who Deshaun Watson is, who J.J. Watt is, the culture will come, and it'll take on – and you've seen this, it takes on the personality of the head coach because it's a small organization. As long as you have that and you've got a coach that holds guys to high standards, you'll develop your own culture. But you can't, you can't pigeonhole or force feed people into a certain culture because uh, it, it just doesn't work that way in an environment like the NFL. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of like, you know, believe, football, you have to be very intelligent to play because you really need to know the schemes and the plays and the downs defensively and offensively. But no offense here, but you can't just recruit and uh, sign up a uh, whole team of Ivy Leaguers. It doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> oh, that, that's exactly what I would tell you, Dr. Chow, is that. That's not a know, shot at you. I just, you know. No, no, no. Because I, uh, I take that shot at myself when the, the whole the mantra for the last couple of years has been tough, smart, dependable. They started off saying smart, tough, dependable, but the acronym for that is STD. So they figured out, okay, we'll go with uh, dependable. They said dependable, tough, smart. They, they, they messed around with various variations until finally they put it on a T-shirt in training camp, and it had to be dependable, tough, and smart. Um, so I, I, I think that it made me think of when I was a player. You know, coaches would tell me, because I was a hardworking guy, and I showed up early and stayed late and busted my butt, all that stuff. And every now and then a coach would tell me, you know, Seth, if we just had 22 guys like you, we'd win the Super Bowl every year. And my, my first thought was always like, that's complete BS, man. That's not true one bit. Like, you need, you need a few knuckleheads who are physical freaks who are going to go out and not necessarily do everything by the book. But when you're trying to compete against other teams that have physical freaks that are, that are maybe a little screwy in the head or whatever, like, there's a, there's a continuum there, you know, and you got to make some concessions here. And, and first and foremost, you got to have some extreme physical talent on that team because um, a team full of nice guys will get you really what the Texans have had the last several years until this last year when everything went haywire was a bunch of you know nine and seven performances ten and six uh, at, at times but ultimately playoff disappointments yeah I, I, I hear you there but just so you know you probably never knew this but you know how you're in the locker room you know I went to this guy went to USC this guy went to Nebraska this guy went to Alabama you claim all the players around the league I claimed everyone from the Ivy Leagues. I didn't even play football, but I needed to claim the entire Ivy League, anyone who's in the NFL, you yeah. know, just because I needed more bodies. So I claimed <laughs> you. I, I claimed everybody, right? I claimed Marcellus Wiley when he's on our team from Columbia. Obviously, Ryan Fitzpatrick's a bellwether right now. I'm not, that's what you got to do when you're, you know, and I didn't even play football, but, you know. It was uh, cool. You know, the cool thing about a lot of the Ivy League players is that they're really a lot of late bloomers because they're guys that – um, they end up making it in the NFL because then maybe they didn't get scholarship offers because they were a little small. I grew two inches in college, you know, so I, I grew two inches and put on 60 pounds. I was just, I, I became a man like my sophomore year in college. So I was like, Marcellus Wiley was a running back 
Yeah. He started off. With those crazy played, legs? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. He still played short yardage running back in the Ivy League. Can you imagine that? We'd line up, and, and Marcellus Wiley was bigger than everybody on our defensive line except for me, and he's you know, just galloping over, uh, galloping over his offensive line for, for first downs and short yardage. So you do get a lot of kind of maybe the scrappier guys that are – they've got good football IQs. They're, they're bright guys, but they, they weren't necessarily dominant – I, you know, when you're not a, a dominant kid or dominant enough to, to get a scholarship out of high school, um, I, I think you've got a certain appreciation for it when you get to the NFL. I always, I was always, I felt way, way more grateful than guys who maybe by the time they were juniors in high school knew they had a shot at the NFL and, and almost looked at it as their meal ticket versus something that something that is is like the genuine gift that it is I mean you work your butt off for it but part of it is that you you're lucky enough to win the genetic lottery to be good enough to play yeah yeah well if you have time normally the guest segment we just do a guest segment but I'd love to do part two with you and talk some fun stuff if you've got the oh time. yeah yeah I'm good uh, the, the one final question is my tiger comes back in the room here hi tiger is um JJ Watt Bill O'Brien being fired what was the fight what was the real story I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't, I honestly, I haven't, I haven't dug for that. Um, I, uh, so I really don't know. I'll, I'll say that, you know, O'Brien, O'Brien ran obviously a kind of a high stress environment at times. I don't, I don't think he has a side to him that has a heart and, and there's a side to Bill O'Brien you know, and maybe the majority of the time that's who he is, is actually a pretty cool guy, but he's got a volatile temper and he would go off about just random various things that, that that left people confused sometimes about why exactly he was even going off about that and as as the pressure mounted what people told me this last year was that as the pressure mounted with him acting as the general manager and with this season being as weird as it was well well bill o'brien was also remember deandre hopkins was traded right at the beginning of the pandemic so his plan to all of a sudden have these guys like brandon cooks and randall cobb and david johnson you know of those three guys i would say only one of those guys was somebody you should have been optimistic about and brandon cooks that that these guys were going to somehow replace deandre hopkins in that you're going to do it without a, a real training camp, it sounded like the pressure really started to get to him. And when the Texans started off 0-4, I think at the time of the fight, it was either after they had lost their first, I think after their first three games or their first two games, uh, it, was, uh, it was a really high-stress environment by that point. So it, it could have been any number of things, but, yeah, the, the tension was boiling. Yeah, and, and by the way, I played fantasy football for the first time this year, like in a real league, this, uh, you know uh, – Scott Fishbowl League, et cetera. And essentially, uh, I drafted Brandon Cooks early, like not top of the draft, but early the most, because my theory was that come hell or high water, Bill O'Brien was going to make that trade work. Make yeah. that trade work. Because, right? because, right, he's catching so much flack that and Cooks is a good receiver, but they're going to be vested to make that work. Didn't work out that well, but uh... the scariest thing for me was when they made that trade. And you know, when you first heard DeAndre Hopkins was traded, everybody flipped the hell out, as you should have. But then the second thought is, okay, well, what are they getting in return? 
<laughs> and you realize, well, actually, I think the first news that came out was that the Texans had traded for David Johnson. <laughs> and then you wonder, well, why are they trading for David Johnson? What's going on here? And then you thought, okay, well, what's the return going to be? And it turns out that, like, oh, no, no, you're giving away DeAndre Hopkins for, for David Johnson in a second rounder. Um, it, but it was when I, got, when I got even more nervous was when I realized, like, oh, look, David Johnson was really, really good when he was still in his prime, but it's been since 2016. I didn't think that they seriously were going to treat him as their feature back, but, but that's what they did. So that's when, um, that's, when, that's when it really became evident that everything was out of control. Yeah. All right. As I play catch with my daughter here, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with part two of the Pro Football Doc podcast, more lighthearted stuff. I want to hear about Mattress Mac. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> avocado tequila and, and other uh, things. Uh, quick break here. Uh, thanks for listening. Welcome back to part two of the Pro Football Doc podcast. We're very pleased to still have longtime NFL veteran Seth Payne with us. Uh, he might have to leave a little bit early. If you do, just let us know we're good here. But I wanted to ask you about who I think, I don't know the guy, I think you do in Houston, Mattress Mac. Oh, yeah. I think he is brilliant and I'll get to why, but you you buy a lot of furniture there. I saw your, your tweets and whatever. Uh, I think he's absolutely brilliant with what he does with his promotions. He does. So Mattress Mac is the guy that anybody listening might have seen on social media when he's bet millions of dollars on the Astros to win the World Series. Um, this this last time, you know, he used to do just most of his big bets were Houston teams. Uh, the Super Bowl, he bet on Tampa to win uh, the, the bet uh, over a million dollars. I can't remember. Was it three million dollars that Tampa would win? Um, but Usually this gets told or tweeted out just as, hey, this Houston high roller that's gambling a whole bunch of money and people look at him like he's some, you know, Yahoo or something. They're just, just out of his mind, wasting all his money. Yeah, anyways, that, here's your little thing on there. Yeah, go ahead. He was uh, so so he basically what he's doing is he's doing this as a hedge to his furniture promotions because in the instance of Tampa he ran this promotion that if Tampa won the Super Bowl then if you bought furniture under this promotion and Tampa won the Super Bowl your furniture would be free so he you know based on what his sales are with that promotion and whatever his margins are, he figures out, okay, how much do I have to bet on Tampa that if Tampa does win, then I'm covered. But at the same time, look, I've made a certain amount of money and I've sold a certain amount of furniture. Man, man, yeah. It goes better. It's better than that. Right. Because he doesn't actually, because Tampa doesn't actually have to win. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, so yeah, here's where it's better than that. I, I'm learning the gambling world. I'm in a state where gambling yeah. is not legal, but with the pro football doc stuff that I do, gambling's a big part of it. And so I'm learning this is the brilliance of Mattress Mac. He had himself a middle. There's a reason why yeah. he said Tampa wins. Not Tampa covers, Tampa wins. Right, the promotion okay. is if Tampa wins, yep. Not, and it's not gonna be if the Chiefs win. It's yeah. if Tampa wins, and here's what he does. He sells $3 million, he sells $3.5 million of furniture. If Tampa wins, he loses three and a half million dollars. Yep. So what does he do? He bets three and a half million dollars on Tampa plus 3.5. So if Tampa covers, it's a wash. He's made all the sales and that's it. Yep. If Tampa loses and doesn't cover, KC wins, he just sold the furniture. Yep. 
And guess what? If it's a close game within three and the Chiefs win, he sold three and a half million dollars of furniture and he gets to collect three and a half million dollars. He yeah. set himself up a no lose situation. And it's and, brilliant. Right. And he gets a whole bunch of free publicity because he's out there all over the place. And you know what? Okay. He owns a bunch of furniture stores, like a bunch of furniture stores in Houston. Uh, what does that matter? I don't know if it may. I mean, it doesn't matter if he's getting free publicity in Seattle, right? But in Houston, he's getting all those, all that content on sports radio or ESPN and everything. And for the most part, like I get agitated sometimes because people don't report it for what it actually is. And they make him look like he's just this crazy wild man, like Texas stereotype, you know. Um, but I mean, he doesn't care. And the people in Houston, a lot of them that don't understand the hedging side of it, just see it as, oh, wow, look at that. He really loves the Astros. Oh, wow, look at that. He really loves the Rockets. He really loves the Texans. He, he's got our back. So it's really uh, it's really just brilliant all around. He's a really interesting guy. Crazy like a fox brilliant. Yeah. When I figured out what he was doing, I was like, this guy's brilliant. He's got yeah. both sides covered with a big upside for himself either yeah. way. So yeah. And he, and he is a huge sports fan. He was, he, he brought, he's, um, uh, he's, he's done a lot with professional tennis and tried to bring various sporting events to Houston. He's a really interesting guy. All right. Uh, more important questions as we move on to the, the second casual part of the pro football dog podcast, which is, uh, you ever, uh, you ever try avocado tequila? I never have. I'm trying to think of who who has the avocado tequila. Who's that? Uh, which brand is that? Uh, Tom Brady brand. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because he's so big with the avocado. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> just joking. Uh... <laughs> I was, you know, what I was wondering with with Brady, if whether he was actually drunk or if it was just the first time in like seven years that he had some. He had some gluten-free muffins or something, and and his body was so polluted by just gluten and preservatives or anything else that that just made him tipsy. Well, you know, I, I think you know I have the the screen share tweet up here of him. Uh, it's not running, but oh yeah, I had never, I hadn't actually seen that uh, that tweet where he said nothing to see here, just a little avocado tequila with the intentional misspellings and everything. Well, that's my question to you. Yeah. Okay, like. Look, he, he's a winner, right? At, at Twitter and social media life. I mean, great. He got a little tipsy. So be it. The avocado tequila line is awesome. Um, you know, kind of thing. And I'm in San Diego. So, and I still haven't tried avocado ice cream. So I still don't know what it is, but yeah, I'm not that healthy. But do you think, A, do you think he runs his own social media account? I, that's a really good question because he, he in the last few years has gotten pretty damn savvy and pretty damn witty with it. Like to a level that I don't know if I've really seen in interviews, but some people are like that. Some people are, some people are pretty damn, you know, writers are like this. A lot of writers are just brilliant with the written word, but they're not necessarily so witty in one-on-one -on -one conversation. Maybe that's, maybe that's all it is, is that he's kind of quick witted on Twitter. It, it, he's no, he's no dope. I'm not saying that he's just, he never comes across as, is even trying to be all that witty, but he's got a really good social media account. Yeah, no question. And so, well, if you uh, talked with uh, with uh, uh, Lonnie Paxton last week, and Lonnie's a good friend of Tom's. Tom, he says Tom runs his own Twitter account. Does he so, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought he would have had. I, I, I honestly, some of the stuff is so good and so quick that I thought maybe he had some intern 
like the like NBA team style Twitter guy that's just really really sharp because the the kids that run I say kids you know most of them are probably 30 or so but the kids that run the social media accounts for NBA teams um and some of the baseball teams are just so incredibly funny it blows me away and some of his stuff some of his stuff is so well-timed and so quick that it seems like it couldn't be Tom but I guess so kudos to him that's impressive now, do you think this misspelling is intentional or unintentional? Yeah, that's intentional because he's got the old, uh, the all cap, small cap, all cap, you know. What about a, no, noting, noting to see here? Nothing noting to see here. Yeah, I think that's too, that's intentional because spell check would have figured that out. You almost have to, to write noting to see her, he would have had to actually physically overpower spell check on the nothing. I got you. Well, I mean, I don't know because uh, if you, you obviously haven't seen my Twitter handle where I do this, you know, uh, wrong this, that, the other all the time because I don't check the spell check. I just like send it. But it's anyway. a, yeah, I don't. Well, spell check is the, these are one of the things between spell check and my Roomba. These are the things that I get ridiculously angry about where, where something is still a modern miracle that any of it works ever. I get really frustrated that it doesn't work 100% of the time. And I feel I find it unacceptable. And of course, everyone has seen him throw the, uh, the, uh, the trophy, right? I mean, yeah. And, and uh, uh, he threw the trophy and the, is it the daughter of the yes. man who designed the Lombardi trophy is irate about it. She hasn't, <laughs> she wasn't able to sleep for two nights because she's livid. <laughs> My theory about that was that she might be a woman who's uh, distraught over various statue topplings that she's seen in the last few years. And she sees this as yet another statue toppling. So she's going, uh, she's going ultimate Karen on this. And it's after uh, a, a, a long, she's probably got a social, she's got a social media history of being upset over toppled statues that's my guess i haven't i haven't tried to see if this I, I is love, true at all I, I love jason lick tampa bay's gm's response He's, you can see it on the screen share so lighten up francis from, <laughs> from stripes <laughs> going back to uh to uh old days uh etc um let me ask you a question here a little more serious uh, uh oh, oh on the super bowl by the way did you did you pick the right side Casey or Tampa? I ended up, I was pulling, I was rooting for Tampa and I, I picked Kansas city, which of course now in hindsight always feels like the dumbest thing ever, even though it made complete and total sense. And that was the unanimous choice beforehand. I didn't think, I didn't think Tampa's defense was going to be able to foil Kansas city the way they were and without at some point giving up some big plays. I thought for sure, I thought for sure they'd give up some big plays, but man, they uh, kudos to them and the pass rush. I, and I, I should have, uh, I should have stayed away from all that and just bet on my, I, my one home run Super Bowl prop. I said the one prop that I said that I liked better than else was Patrick Mahomes rushing yards. Oh yeah. Because, because I figured the O-line would be a little suspect. He'd get flushed a couple extra rushes and he's going to get that. And not only did he hit that in the first quarter, as I read some of the other things that are out there now on MMQB or otherwise, the Todd Bowles game plan was even when he was flushed, don't leave the receivers. Six men in the box, two yep. deep safeties, take away the first throw. Now he's got to scramble because the defense is getting there. But don't leave your man. Just yeah. leave that to uh, to uh, Devin White to chase down. And so yeah. the rushing that guards came easy for uh, – for uh, for Patrick Mahomes there, it, it's amazing. Really I mean, the way that the way that people, it's almost become kind of like the Big Twelve now, where you, you know, earlier I talked about the 1970s Big Twelve, and I was thinking about like teams, you know, those some of those Midwestern teams just running the ball um, versus 
modern, what did I say? Big 12, the big eight back in the day, the big 12, the modern big 12, um, where a lot of defensive coordinators just concede, you know, like, all right, look, we're going to give up huge chunks of yardage. If you, if you want to do it on the ground, then go for it and good luck to you. And, and I, I, I doubt that Bulls thought it was going to work that well. Cause when you play a lot of two man, yeah, you, you just concede when you're in man coverage, you've got all these guys playing man coverage and their backs are turned to the line of scrimmage. So it just opens things up for the quarterback and he's going to get his yardage. He's going to get his chunks. But the thing that's so lethal about Kansas city was it's not those, it's not the quarterback running for 10 yards. It's the quarterback scrambling around and, and finding somebody open downfield and getting those huge plays. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of forgiving of candy, not coming off of the game plan, because it's not like this is the first time this year that they saw two man or similar game plans. And it, but it's just the same. It's the first time that it was executed as well as this. And that the, the chiefs offensive line was as bad as they were. And Mahomes had a bum, bum toe. Yeah, absolutely. Promise to get you at the top of the hour and we might go a little longer. But final question. What do you think about Solomon Thomas coming out and saying, uh, get rid of turf, all grass, like it, don't like it because of the additional injuries. You know, I hadn't realized until recently when I was looking at some articles, you know, forever, I know this forever. They were saying that there was no conclusive evidence that turf actually caused more injuries and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Now there, now there are more convincing numbers that, that show that turf causes more injuries. I think on the NFL, it makes sense. It, uh, as long as the teams are held to a certain standard for how good is their actual natural turf. Because all of these things are, you know, there's what happens in general versus what happens in specific situations. And sometimes there are teams whose, whose natural field is so shoddy that I can't imagine that it's safer than, than artificial turf. So I, I guess on a, on a case by case basis, as long as there's a certain standard held, I'd be, I, I think it's a good idea. Well, I think you're right. I mean, you take Houston as an example, when the grass was on pallets at the new stadium and there were seams because yeah. of the pallet, that's an inherent danger. So the grass there is more dangerous. But in general, the data's for a long time been that uh, AstroTurf, once again, Houston, th that was bad. Yeah. Uh, the new sport grass, way better than AstroTurf, but not as good as natural grass. Um, and still to this day, but I get it, a lot of indoor stadiums, a lot of different situations and looks, but, but it's actually been known for probably 20 years. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I listen to too much propaganda from turf companies, I suppose. The, the new sport grass is better. Yeah, than, yeah. And, and for some, but it's not better for everything. For example, uh, the bottom line is this, the, the better your foot sticks to the surface, the grass, the turf, or whatever, the less slippage there is, yeah. the more chance of injury. It's like your ski bindings crank tighter. Yeah. More well, and I, I, you At know, just, yeah, my personal experience, just for like the anecdotal, anecdotal story, both, I tore my ACL twice, my left and my right knee. In both instances, they were on turf and not great turf. One was the old Superdome and one was up at Texas stadium. Their last year, they had some kind of shaggy weird. I don't know what the hell that stuff was, but it wasn't good. And in, in both of mine, 
I felt my foot get stuck. You know, it was that twisting, torquing while my foot was planted in the ground. And I don't think those would have happened on grass. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's an economic barrier to it in high school and college. But in the NFL, once we get at least once we get through COVID, it doesn't seem like there would be the economic barrier. And if anything, the more you can keep your star athletes healthy, the more the more revenue you're, you're theoretically producing. Well, you know, uh, I, we do a beast of the week feature and other things, but it's top of the hour. So I'll get you out of here on the, on the Johnny football quote. You hear what he said? It was uh, win or lose. We booze. <laughs> he's finally himself. Podcast, you know, he's, we, we, he's finally able to be himself. He's a peacock and they're letting him fly. You, you should get some, uh, some Johnny football, some uh, Johnny Walker sponsorships. <laughs> Jerry could help <laughs> with that. <laughs> I, really, I really, I wish I could stick around for another hour, but I got these damn obligations and responsibilities. No, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Seth. Thanks for uh, coming on. Anything else you want to tell people about before you sign off? What you're doing? Uh, uh, the Deceptively Fast Podcast. If you don't live in Houston, uh, where you can hear my radio show, check out the Deceptively Fast Podcast. We have a good time on there. All right. Thank you so much, Seth. I appreciate Thanks, it. Guys. All right, as we say goodbye to Seth there, we're going to continue on with a uh, couple of uh, little things before we uh, conclude. Uh, don't ever want to run long. We may say some of our features like uh, what happened here. This offseason, we're going to do some new things, uh, some new features. I'll analyze some videos that you send in. I'll do a mailbag. We'll have a bunch of other features. So for the time being, uh, tweet at me or you can uh, uh, send things through uh, profootballdoc.com, support at profootballdoc.com. We're still doing updates. Trevor Lawrence and his shoulder surgery, Dak Prescott, that's all at profootballdoc.com in the off season. But uh, every, the ever popular feature that we will do before the end is the beast of the week, just because people are used to that. And let me show you our beast of the week this week. Since we don't really have any, uh, any uh, uh, football action to analyze. This is the beast of the week that we will have this week here. Uh, don't mess with mama. Rolling when a Houston area mother tackles a suspected peeper who she says was looking into her daughter's bedroom. Even if you think you can run from the cops, good luck getting past this mom. Captured on police dash cam, taking down a man she says was trying to look into her 15 year old daughter's bedroom window early on a Sunday morning. Well, bottom line is form, form tackle there, right? Tackles a suspected peeper. Complete form tackle there in terms of, uh, of uh, from the mom there. I mean, look, the, the, NF, the streaker at the Super Bowl wouldn't have got very far if she was working security. So uh, let's end on that fun note. Beast of the week is that mom who tackled the suspected uh, a peeper on her 15 year old daughter in the window. Great form tackle, heads up, the whole deal. And uh, uh, thanks for listening to Pro Football Doc Podcast. We'll be back next week. We'll have some new features going on. Send in special questions or videos. If you have any questions, videos, uh, tweet at me or support at profootballdoc.com. Thanks for uh, listening, and uh, hopefully we'll make that Jose Canseco thing happen uh, too. We're trying to get that to work. Uh, thanks for listening, and give us some five-star ratings.